to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about uh, Republican economic policy as we move closer and closer to the midterms here in the U.S. Also going to be talking about the issue of uh, weapons and how that's uh, uh, being carried through in the ongoing war in Ukraine and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Ryan Cooper, Managing Editor of the American Prospect. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And uh, Ryan, of course, we're getting closer and closer to uh, midterm elections here in the U.S. And um, it seems as though uh, the Republicans, in terms of polling, might be doing uh, a slightly better in terms of numbers uh, the closer things get. And uh, uh, one of the things that it seems that Republicans are really pushing for is uh, really something that they've been kind of pushing for for a while, and that's cuts to social programs like Medicaid. Medicare and Social Security. And you recently published a piece about this for the American Prospect, Ryan, entitled uh, Republicans are Coming for Your Social Security and Medicare. The Party of Starving Grandma Returns to Its Roots. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just sort of what you mean by that and how, you know, uh, going after these particular uh, social programs have become such a defining characteristic for Republicans. Yeah, I mean, this has just been their sort of playbook uh, going back to, you know, Reagan and uh, George H.W. Bush viewing, you know, Social Security as a handout to the poor uh, and Medicare is like basically socialism. You know, Reagan got his political start in a, uh, a, a, a advertisement that was that was played all over the place in the 60s that that predicted that if if medicare was passed back in 1965 that the united states would become a communist dictatorship um mysteriously that didn't happen but republicans are still dedicated to the the idea and they've done it uh, before they they tried to do it in 2011 and in 2013 through this exact mechanism of taking the the debt ceiling hostage and trying to force um, you know, Democrats who agree to massive cuts to these programs. Um, it, it almost happened in 2011. In fact, President Obama was ready to agree to something like $800 billion in cuts to those two programs. And it didn't happen because Obama's condition was that there'd be at least some tax hike to go along with it to cut the budget deficit. Uh, you know, which is a uh, sensible justification of this. And the Freedom Caucus said no. They wanted all the marbles and no compromises. So it didn't it didn't happen. But, yeah, this is this is just their typical thing. Uh, you know, uh, government insurance for old people or, or public pensions for old people. That's no good. We should be giving that to Wall Street and uh, private insurance companies. Yeah, and I was hoping you could say more about what you mean about them, uh, the Republicans holding the, the debt ceiling hostage. You know, what do you mean by that? And, and what what is even the role of uh, the debt ceiling in this whole question, you think? Yeah, so this is important um, because it, it's often mischaracterized in the media. So the debt ceiling is just a, a technical limitation on the number of dollars the government is allowed to borrow 
and it's a relic from how the how borrowing was originally set up in the you know 19th century. Um, in 1917, because of the World War One, they they previously had to authorize every new debt issuance with a new law, and that got to be a real pain. So they just said, "Here is a big number. You know, you can you can borrow this much." So Congress has already agreed to a, a budget, a spending and taxation package, and that produces borrowing because of it's you know the two numbers do not are not aligned. But then you have this separate thing, the debt ceiling, which is just a technical anachronism. It doesn't do anything as far as like spending per se. It's just like another legal, you know, basically uh, housekeeping that you have to deal with, you know, every so often. And the reason that the Republicans want to take it hostage is that if the U.S. goes over the debt ceiling, then probably we would miss an interest payment on the national debt. That would be national default. And that would probably cause a worldwide financial apocalypse. Um, and they're trying this mechanism because when they've tried to cut Social Security and Medicare directly through themselves, like George W. Bush tried to privatize Social Security in 2005, if you remember that, it was a total flop. People love these programs, and they don't want to have them cut. So they try to get this, uh, this. They use these hostage tactics, basically, to get Democrats to like put their, you know, fingers on the knife, so to speak, um, and get them to, you know, agree to the cuts that they want. Because if they ran on them and and did it, you know, of their own volition, uh, it would be a huge backlash, and they would lose the next election. And so it's a, it's a. Uh, kind of, you might call it a terrorist tactic of, of threatening the global economy and the American economy with disaster unless Biden agrees to, you know, gore uh, Medicare and Social Security somehow. Yeah, and, you know, this whole concept of uh, a debt ceiling, it's, it's one of those things that I feel like is treated as um, a kind of natural uh, outgrowth of the economy or something like that. But as you you know just laid out, it plays uh, quite a different role altogether. And I mean, uh, where else in the world do we even see uh, this concept uh, being used? And is it uh, similar issues? Does it cause the same sort of problems that we see here in the U.S.? Or, you know, how else do we see that process uh, playing out? Yeah, not only America is crazy enough to do this to itself. Uh, there, every every other country except one ha- does not have a debt ceiling. It's it's that when you're in the budget process and you pass a budget, they think logically you have agreed to borrow whatever the balance is. You know, like that that would just be the most sensible way of setting it up. Obviously, the sole exception is Denmark. Denmark has a debt ceiling. It's similarly a, just a holdover from previous. Um, nor ways of doing things, but what they did is they just set it so high that it's never going to be reached. They, they just, you know, it was just like virtually the same thing as getting rid of it. And in Danish politics, no one would ever even consider taking, you know, the debt limit hostage because that would be so crazy and so like uh, uh, anti-patriotic. You might even say that the irresponsible, you know, that, that that wouldn't even come up. So yeah, it's it's only America, and you know we should have gotten rid of this, you know, decades ago, but uh, we haven't for some reason. Yeah, and that was actually going to be my next question. I mean, why do you think that uh, this 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 whole uh, debt ceiling issue has been held onto for so long, given what we know about its consequences? 
Yeah, it, it really is baffling. I mean, I think it shows you the pathologies of the parties. Um, you know, Republicans like it because it gives them a way to, you know, just be incredibly irresponsible and dangerous. And Democrats are, are worried that, you know, some swing voter or something is going to hear that they voted to get rid of the debt ceiling and, uh, it, you know, they'll have a panic attack. I don't know. I mean, it's such an arcane and technical thing that I I don't think most people would even notice. You know, if you, if you actually talk to, like, a swing voter, if you can find one, and try to explain to them what the debt ceiling is, they often will not believe you that there is such a thing because it's so stupid. Um, it's, it's just a, a nonsensical system. But they could do it. In the lame duck, it's coming up. There is a... Um, they could do another reconciliation bill, and you can't technically get rid of the, the debt ceiling, you know, because of the rules of reconciliation. More stupid stuff we do to ourselves. But you could raise it to, you know, an, like Denmark did, to an arbitrarily high amount. Or you could set it up with a formula, um, you know, that it will be you know, basically raised automatically. Or this is actually a proposal that, that I, people are working on. You could give the power to raise it to the Treasury Secretary, and have, and say Congress could only reject raises through um, a normal vote, which would have to get sixty votes because of you know reconciliation rules, I guess, and that would sort of diffuse it. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> they could have done it ten years ago, but better to do it now than not at all, certainly. Yeah, and I mean, do we see any sort of uh, uh, counter? proposal, if you will, or some other sort of economic policy uh, moving in a better direction coming from uh, the Democrats? Or where do you see them sort of uh, sitting in terms of this uh, kind of uh, question of the country's economy? Yeah, it's 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 troubling because it, it seems like we're seeing a return to austerity politics. You know, inflation uh, is high and the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. And I was just reading a article in Politico about how this means that the, the country can't borrow anymore. Um, and that, you know, if we were to run into a recession, that, that's just not true. You know, like like the United Kingdom, they, they had a sort of run on the on the uh, government debt there because of the, the mini budget that the ex-prime minister passed. Um, and, but that was just halted by the Bank of England. They just stepped in and they bought a bunch of debt and stabilized the market, and, and that was the end of it. Um, the, the operative player here, if we're going to borrow in a recession, is the Federal Reserve. If the Federal Reserve will backstop the government, then you're fine. So, you know, that that uh, is troubling because it means if it's austerity politics, then you can't bail the country out of a recession, and you can't add new you know programs without paying for everything and with taxes first and and. That's just a false picture of where we're at, especially if we were to get into a recession. But, you know, Democrats aren't really pushing back, and they don't really seem to have that many more proposals, aside from maybe trying to, like, resurrect the child tax credit and, you know, just continue with their, the climate uh, package that, that was already passed and just seem to be kind of posting on that. 
Yeah, and the reason I ask is because it seems as we get closer to uh, the midterms here in the U.S., uh, it seems that we, you know, continue to see these uh, attempts by uh, Biden, the Democrats, at, uh, you know, ginning up votes, whether it's through uh, the whole uh, marijuana piece or the student uh, loan debt forgiveness piece or things like that. And yet, as you note uh, in your piece, the uh, a gap in the polls seems to be closing little by little. And, you know, we try not to be too predictive when it comes to uh, uh, elections here. But, I mean, what do you think uh, are the kinds of things that uh, the Democrats would need to really start to push for if they wanted to uh, broaden that gap between them and the Republicans uh, between now and that uh, that uh, midterm period? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big thing is inflation. And I think that, you know, the, the administration hasn't had a particularly convincing line on it, um, you know, that's sort of like been some effort to basically blame it on Putin and the war. Um, but they have they have taken a modest step, which is to, to sell a bunch of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And then now that prices are, are, are uh, you know, had been falling, they promised to buy it back at $70 a barrel. They've actually made a tidy profit for the government in the process. Um, but that stab- stabilizes the oil market and, you know, uh, increases the prospect of long-term, uh, you know, investment being so, like, they want to get the frackers going again, basically. And that appears to be working, but that would take months, not years. Um, and so in the meantime, you know, it's like you could you could crack down on, like, you know, corporate profiteering and stuff like that. But uh, that would require legislation, and the parties kind of tapped out on that Um what they can even pass. Uh, so, you know, the, the the get gas prices down somehow in swing states, I guess, would be the thing I would try to do, um, you know, either by, like, bullying the Saudi Arabia or something. But uh, they don't seem to be willing to try that much. And so you're sort of just stuck to see what's if hope the polls are wrong, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Saudi Arabia, I mean, what what role do you think this whole issue of uh, oil prices uh, may may play in some of these upcoming elections? Oh, it's going to be huge. I mean, I think gas prices are the single biggest thing. I mean, Americans are kind of rationally fixated on gas prices, you know, because we drive such huge, inefficient cars. And then, you know, gas is just a thing that you buy regularly. and You see the price you remember. It's a big expense. So it has a salience that other expenses don't. And I think, frankly, that Saudi Arabia is trying to help the Republicans. They like it. They liked it when Trump was in power because he gave blank check to do whatever they wanted to, like butchered Washington Post columnists. And they're really mad that Biden's trying to, you know, dial that back a little bit, even though he went hat in hand, you know, to Saudi Arabia, begging them for more supply. And they cut it instead. You know, it couldn't be more obvious. You would think that as a basically a client state of the United States government, they would be a little more circumspect about like bullying the incumbent president. But if Biden's just going to sit and take it, then it's hard to say why not. But it's certainly important and it might turn the tide for the Republicans. 
Yeah, I mean, it very well could. It uh, it very well could. And I mean, you know, just sort of uh, uh, taking a step back, I mean, you know, uh, uh, when we sort of look at the prospects for um, these upcoming uh, midterm elections and we see, I mean, even recently with Joe Biden saying that, uh, you know, uh, people will be able to have uh, abortion access, you know, access to abortion rights and things like this if, you know, uh, the Democrats get the proper votes that they should. I mean, it's hard not to feel, Ryan, like um, there's almost a deepening of a kind of a political crisis in the U.S. that is sort of tied to a number of other uh, crises going on as well, you know, socially, economically, and uh, things like this. And so, I mean, I don't know. At a certain point, it just kind of feels like uh, uh, the center may not be able to hold uh, at some point if we don't see the kind of um, drastic policies and proposals proposals coming from, uh, uh, you know, uh, those in power as are needed to really uh, secure a lot of folks needs that are pretty serious as of right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, it's certainly, you know, there, there's there's been some, you know, response to the problems. It's It's been inadequate, but it's been, you know, grading on a curve for the Democrats. It's It's been you know, uh, uh, more than we saw out of the Obama administration, certainly with the with far larger majorities in Congress. Um, I think you know, as you as you pointed to, that there there's there needs to be a better you know a more aggressive you know response to the problems facing the country, bringing back the child tax credit, that sort of thing. Um, but there's also, and I think even more importantly, there's a threat to just like the electoral process. The Washington Post had this article the other day that was a, about basically how like fascist militias have infiltrated the uh, voting system in, in uh, Nevada. And they, they've basically hounded out the neutral sort of bureaucrats who just like count the votes, administer polling stations, that sort of thing in big chunks of the state. And, you know, like the, if, you know, these these wacky Republicans, you know, there's election deniers on the ballot to run uh, the state's uh, you know, electoral system in Arizona, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan. Um, and if they you know, if, if it's Republicans, if these type of Republicans are, are running elections. Like I don't think there will be an election in 2024. There will not be a real election anyway. And you, you know, you see in Nevada the potential of it just being a sort of Jim Crow style, you know, intimidation of liberals to where you know you sort of just set up a, a fake democracy, kind of like Hungary, you know, a, 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 a dictatorship that with a patina of, um, you know, democratic legitimacy. Um, where, you know, you can go, you go vote for one option with the guy with a big gun, you know, right in the polling station. And so it, I, I think that's a real, you know, a challenge and an expectation from the attorney general and from Biden, you know, to like defend the integrity of the voting system. And, you know, the fact that they haven't really done anything about this so far is pretty, pretty damning. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about developments happening inside Brazil. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by independent journalist Natalia Urban. Natalia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Great to be here today. Absolutely. And uh, Natalia, here recently in Brazil, a former federal deputy, Roberto Jefferson, uh, fired uh, shots and threw a grenade at federal police who came to his house this past weekend, I believe, to arrest him. They were trying to uh, serve an arrest warrant against him, you know, a former congressman. And uh, uh, there's been, I think, a lot of coverage within Brazil about uh, sort of a uh, Jefferson's, you know, background and things like this. I mean, there seems to be uh, something of an attempt to uh, cover up his history and connections with uh, incumbent far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. And so, Natalia, I was hoping you could help us understand just who is uh, Roberto Jefferson, what is happening here uh, with this whole situation, and, you know, how does it factor into the uh, landscape of Brazil, uh, which will be, you know, heading back to the polls for the second round of its presidential election in about a week. Well, first of all, Roberto Jefferson is one of the most uh, oldest uh, Bolsonaro's allies. Um, they were both uh, congressmen from the state of Rio de Janeiro and the same party uh, for many years. Uh, it's important that people to know that Bolsonaro is currently at his third party because he's always shifting parties in Brazil, always, of course, a small fringe uh, far-right asks parties. But uh, Roberto Jefferson is someone that um, was always there. Um, Roberto Jefferson employed one of Jair's sons uh, when he was the leader of PTB, which was is his current party. And he's someone that um, was always um, obscure parliamentary until he became a whistleblower during the PT administration for the Mensalão scandal, which he started to give uh, um, names of people who were supposedly involved in corruption schemes because himself was, he was someone who was also involved in corruption schemes. That's why nowadays is currently under house arrest. And not, uh, and the reason why the police went to his house was because he was sending threats, and it's not the first time uh, that he uses social media to send explicit uh, physical threats against members of the superior powers in Brazil, Supreme Court justice, and also uh, the whole uh, uh, electoral system. And this week, Jefferson uh, broke the condition of his house arrest when he threatened the Supreme Court uh, judge uh, Carmen Lucia, calling her a prostitute who deserved the death. 
So when the police went there, he said that he recorded a video saying that he recused uh, to allow himself to be arrested. And he started to exchange fire uh, against the police, uh, which also had knowledge of his home arsenal, which was like uh, in Brazil, we know that Bolsonaro flexibilized the the possession of weapons, but not the possession of hand grenades, for example. And the most uh, disturbing thing for me and for many other Brazilians, especially the Afro-Brazilians, was how sweet and cooperative the Brazilian police was, which is very unlike them, uh, as they are the deadliest police in the Americas, surpassing even the United States police, um, to arrest someone who was openly exchanged fires with them. So the police sent a mediator to talk to them and to uh, negotiate with them uh, peacefully uh, his, the terms of his rendition. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, laying that out, uh, uh, Natalia. And, you know, I'm wondering why you think this has uh, caused such a stir, the whole issue with uh, Jefferson uh, seemingly causing a real uh, uh, sort of response from uh, different sides of uh, the Brazilian political spectrum as a result. I mean, I'm sure a part of it, as I mentioned earlier, has to do with uh, the deeply political period that the country is in. But, I mean, uh, why is it relevant, you think, to sort of highlight the reality of just who uh, Jefferson is and his uh, connections to the current government? Because it shows the desperation of them, because even though the margin uh, of uh, people more inclined to vote for Lula and against Bolsonaro is small now than it used to be, uh, Lula is still ahead and they know they won't change the the. the the percentage of people wanting to vote for Bolsonaro. So they are uh, getting desperate. And in my view, this was Jefferson's attempt of uh, starting uh, maybe perhaps some sort of popular insurrection, uh, January 6th, uh, type of situation in Brazil, even though we are already uh, experiencing in Brazil a lot of political violence from uh, Bolsonaro supporters against people who are supporting uh, President Lula, because, uh, um, but so far it has been uh, isolated attacks and none coming from a famous political figure like Jefferson is. And that's why it's so interesting to see now Bolsonaro trying to detaching himself from uh, Jefferson because Jefferson was someone that was working uh, uh, directly on his re-election campaign. Yeah. And, you know, uh, like we've been mentioning, obviously, this is happening as the uh, uh, country prepares to go, you know, back to the, the polls in uh, a week. And as you're laying out, Natalia, this is all sort of um, uh, bound up in the political moment right now in the, the, the country. And I'm just sort of wondering in the broadest sense, I mean, what do you make of uh, what campaigning has looked like, both uh, from the point of view of the, the Bolsonaro? Not me. I, I'm going to quote something that um, President Lula said um, 
which is that he has never participated on an election campaign that was so violent and dirty as this one. Because Bolsonaro doesn't have a strategy. His strategy is to openly spread lies, the most grotesque lies against President Lula, against PT, against the left in general, and try to hope for the best, because honestly, he doesn't have a project for Brazil. We know that, we experienced that, his lack of a project. The project of, of Bolsonaro is the destruction of Brazil. And so, but this is not something that can gain him votes, so he has to use his only weapon, which is lies and attack. So it was very significant to see um, that even though uh, Jefferson was attacking the minister of uh, the Supreme Electoral Court on his behalf, he's trying to disconnect himself from Jefferson because he's afraid of international actors saying to him, look, we cannot support you if you are going uh, full Trump on the uh, Brazilian uh, political institutions, which is something that already happened coming from even the United States and even uh, the EU and other international organizations who said that they wouldn't support a Brazilian uh, military government or a uh, uh, a disrespect towards the political system, the electoral system there. Yeah, and, you know, that, that's an interesting point to sort of note about how um, Bolsonaro is, you know, engaging in these sort of uh, violent and corrupt uh, tactics because he has no uh, sort of real program for Brazil. That being the case, what then is the basis of uh, Bolsonaro's uh, uh, base of support, if you will, like if there's no um, sort of uh, uh, plan or vision for Brazil moving forward with all of the issues that it has, then uh, uh, who who really makes up sort of the core of Bolsonaro's support then and what what is the appeal of Bolsonaro to them? It's basically the fundamentalist evangelicals, uh, the churches. Bolsonaro has their them in their po- in, in in his pocket. Basically, uh, they are the ones trying to make uh, um, this election seem like a holy crusade, spreading lies about a uh, President Lula who. When he was in power, he actually supported many of the the churches that uh, now are turning against him and trying to uh, make this whole election uh, on some sort of uh, identity politics uh, sort of dispute, even though we are talking about actually feeding people and giving people jobs and not uh, about if uh, uh, pronouns or anything. Uh, When Lula says that everybody has to be respected, what Bolsonaro hears is, oh, Lula is actually saying that he will make all children to change genders or he will force into the... the, um, 
the teachings of um, Afro religions in, in, in schools, in public schools in Brazil, which is not something that Lula has ever said, but this is something that Bolsonaro tries to use as a, 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 a fear a, a motivator, a fear agent to the evangelical churches, like Lula will close churches, Lula will persecute you. And of course, the evangelical priests and uh, the ministers, etc., they all have been benefiting. Uh, uh, they have been gaining a lot of like tax discounts, everything with Bolsonaro in power. So of course they have been uh, uh, supporting him because he they know he's the gatekeeper for his, their fortune. So they have been using their power as religious leaders uh, to make people seem that uh, uh, to try to motivate people into voting for Bolsonaro and not Lula. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, another thing I've sort of been thinking about is what uh, a Lula presidency would mean for Brazil's relationship with uh, the United States. Obviously, Brazil, a large country, an important country in uh, uh, Latin America. Um, you know, Bolsonaro, someone who was called uh, the Trump of the tropics and had a pretty close relationship with Donald Trump. My my impression of his relationship with the Biden administration, it feels like a lot more uh, cool in that way, if not necessarily antagonistic. But I mean, from your perspective, if Lula were able to uh, uh, be able to secure the victory here and become the president of Brazil once again, do you think that would have a, a real impact on Brazil's relationship with the U.S. and the West, or, or do you not see that as a major consideration? I would say that Lula already stated several times that he's bigger, uh, his, uh, in terms of like a foreigner relationship, he will deal with everybody, he will uh, um buy and sell from everybody, but he won't accept uh, any foreigner uh, uh, intrusion or uh, um, um, influence in our politics. And he said that his main goal is to strengthen the relations south uh, to south, meaning like uh, starting uh, uh, um, to make more deals with other countries in Latin America, uh, to make a proper uh, uh, alliance with African countries, with Asian countries, and of course, always like fighting for uh, a multipolar view of the world because Lula was always someone that uh, uh, understood the importance of uh, relationships outside the Western Hemisphere, the Global North. So I would say that he would have a okay-ish relationship with the U.S. administration, but he wouldn't be someone that would accept uh, their uh, orders or uh, their views regarding the relationship that Brazil would have with other countries like Cuba, like Venezuela, um, like um, Iran, like China. He would be very like string uh, uh, forward um, saying like, you have your relationship and we will have ours relationship with them and we won't accept your interference on that particular uh, subject. Yeah, and 
You know, you mentioned a moment ago about this uh, threat that uh, Jair Bolsonaro poses in trying to um, potentially carry out like a January 6th style uh, uh, attack on um, uh, 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 Brazil. And so, I mean, I'm just wondering, is there sort of the, the political support for Bolsonaro? Like, like, should that take place? I mean, obviously, we don't have like a crystal ball. But I mean, just in your understanding of the kind of popular support that uh, a Bolsonaro may have, I mean, uh, do you think that uh, uh, that could be sort of a real uh, potential danger? Or how do you see that aspect of things? I do believe that um, isolated incidents will happen. Um, and this is something that uh, many groups from the Workers' Party and social movements already have been discussing ways of like protecting ourselves from those attacks and uh, ways to keep ourselves safe since they are the ones who own the weapons, they are the ones that have nothing to lose, and they are the ones who think that they are above the law because they, most of them have like privileges that the majority of Lula supporters don't have. So uh, we know those isolated uh, incidents will happen. Like yesterday, uh, there was a rally from the Workers' Party in the state of Rio Grande do Norte. And there was an attempt against the governor of the state. She is uh, from the Workers' Party. And there was someone with a weapon. No one got hurt, but there was an incident. And this has been happening in other rallies. And this has been uh, uh, um, something that has been happening um, all over Brazil and even in other countries uh, uh, within the Brazilian diaspora uh, of Bolsonaro supporters uh, um, trying to get physical and intimidate people through like the use of like violence and even like weapons, of course. So I do believe those isolated incidents will happen but i don't think it will be like a coordinated attack like it ha like it was in the united states Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Natalia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the arms swapping ways of U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Kiriakou, co-host of Political Misfits, which you can hear from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on Radio Sputnik. John, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. And John, you recently published a piece on a consortium news called the Arms Swapper in reference to U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken recently announcing uh, uh, some trips to uh, Peru, Colombia and Chile to discuss, quote unquote, migration. And within this piece, you point out about how kind of strange this is, because, you know, there isn't like a large number of uh, Chileans or Colombians or Peruvians that are illegally in the United States. And so you sort of lay out how this whole piece is actually tied to um, the U.S.'s ongoing proxy war with Russia in Ukraine. So I was hoping you could uh, lay that out and sort of explain just what Blinken was really after here. Sure. The State Department issued a issued a press release about a month ago saying that Secretary Blinken was going to go to these three countries, Colombia, uh, Peru, and Chile, to talk about, quote unquote, migration. Uh, there was no explanation uh, as to exactly what relating to migration he was going to talk about. And, you know, as soon as I read this thing, I, I, I thought that it just didn't make any sense because if you're going to go to Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras, you know, God bless. We, we have an issue there. You can talk to these to the leaders of these countries and try and work out some sort of a of a standard operating procedure for people who want to leave those countries and enter the United States. We don't have that kind of situation with these three countries. So the, the whole purpose of the trip just didn't make any sense to me. Well, after the trip was over, then we started seeing reports about Secretary Blinken asking each of the leaders of these three countries if they would send their old Russian weaponry, and I mean everything from surface to air missiles to Kalashnikov rifles and ammunition to Ukraine, and then have that equipment replaced free of charge with new modern American equipment. And um, so I began tracking this, thinking, well, why why would he go to, to these three countries? It turned out it wasn't just three, these three countries. When he got back from this trip, he called the presidents of uh, South Africa and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, he exchanged letters with the president of Cyprus. The, the, this was a worldwide, you know, we're talking about Indonesia and Thailand and India, any country that has halfway decent relations with the United States. Tony Blinken reached out to them and asked them to send their Russian equipment to Ukraine. Now, the reason he wanted to do this is because American equipment is on the whole, more sophisticated than Russian equipment, it's much more difficult difficult to operate. And so you need to be trained. And sometimes this training can take four weeks or six weeks or you know six months. And the Ukrainians don't have the time or the inclination, frankly. And so uh, the idea is you send them all this old Russian stuff. They already know how to use it and they can use it on the battlefield immediately. And then we'll backfill it with American equipment and train them when there's time to train them. Mm. Okay, that's interesting because that was really my question. I mean, understanding just, I mean, the the tens of billions of dollars that the U.S. is sending to Ukraine for weapons and all of that, then why would Blinken basically be foraging for weapons to send them? But it sounds like, uh, based on what you're uh, laying out here, John, is that it's really an issue of a utility and actually being able to to, to use the weapons, which they would be uh, uh, perhaps uh, more uh, be able to do more easily with those Russians. 
Russian weapons in ter- instead of those newer American weapons. Is that sort of the long and short of it? That's what it is. And, you know, we, we've known for several months now that, that the Ukrainians have a problem. There was a lot of American equipment coming from Germany through Poland. Mm-hmm. And it ended up just sitting in warehouses in Poland because the Ukrainians just don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to use it. Uh, the manuals are in English. They're not in Ukrainian. And um, the United States, for whatever reason, hasn't offered up uh, the, the trainers necessary to make it operational. So it's just been sitting there in warehouses. Yeah. And, you know, what do you think this development means in terms of where the war in Ukraine sort of sits today? I mean, it, it feels that like over the last couple of weeks or a few weeks that it's been uh, steadily escalating uh, uh, just sort of more and more. It feels like the latest uh, uh, sort of uh, point of inflection was um, those four um, uh, territories in Ukraine basically voting to become a part of Russia right. and Vladimir Putin sort of uh, legally uh, <laughs> declaring that that uh, sort of invoking a uh, you know serious response from the Volodymyr Zelensky government that they basically didn't intend on negotiating with the Putin government right. and you know all sorts of things that have sort of flown from this and so I mean and so how do you see this weapons issue sort of factoring into you know a lot of these other broader developments within oh, the conflict right. itself right well if if this doesn't spell proxy war, I, I don't see what does. I mean, this is clearly a war between NATO and Russia, um, with the Ukrainians just being the ones who happen to be carrying it out. I think you're exactly right. You know, this is there are dramatic differences, too, between Russian military strategy and American military strategy. When, when you look at what we did to Iraq, for example, in, in both the, the first Gulf War and then the so-called Iraq War, it started with 30 days of bombing, carpet bombing. I remember one Air Force general saying that we would bomb the Iraqis back to the Stone Age. So we targeted power plants and and water treatment facilities and bridges. We just completely took everything offline. And now if the Russians bomb, you know, a, a power plant and take a million uh, Ukrainian consumers offline, people say, oh, my God, it's a war crime. It's a crime against humanity. Well, this is exactly how every U.S. war starts. We start with the infrastructure. Another thing, too, is the Russians did not uh, send regular military into Ukraine. They sent the National Guard because this was supposed to be a limited operation. Mm -hmm. There was never any Russian intention. There was certainly never any Russian statement even saying that they intended to conquer the whole of of Ukraine or even that they were going to try to conquer Kiev, the capital city. This was this was a very specific uh, move to protect ethnic Russians who happened to find themselves on what was then the Ukrainian side of the border. So it, it's my view, really, that that it's been the West that has upgraded uh, this war, not the not the Russians. The reason the Russians have been pushed out of some of these areas is because. They were never the Russian units that were there were never intended to fight these upgraded U.S. and NATO uh, uh, sponsored or equipped uh, uh, organizations. 
Yeah, and you know, what what you're pointing to here, John, is a fundamental point of this whole conflict that is basically completely missing from uh, the narrative that we get in the United States uh, uh, and the West. I mean, it's basically been disappeared, and that's about the uh, uh, the machinations of NATO. Everything that we're told is based on this supposedly, you know, uh, Hitlerian uh, level of uh, expansionist desire on the part of of Vladimir Putin and it's like we get article after article trying to basically like getting into the mind of a madman type of a a sort of thing as opposed to the reality of NATO's uh, historic and consistent encroachment um, to the doorstep of Russia even after uh, promising a Russian government years ago that there would be no such uh, expansion and so there's just so many fundamentals of uh, history that is verboten to even mention uh, in the United United States and this propaganda to me, John, has been a big part of what's brought us to the dangerous moment that we're in right now. You are exactly right on every one of those points. This is something that we, it's a pattern that we fall into as Americans all the time. Number one, we demonize foreign leaders we don't like, and we always use the word crazy, Mm -hmm. right? Saddam Hussein was crazy. The Ayatollah Khomeini was crazy. Fidel Castro and and Hugo Chavez, they were crazy. Gaddafi. Gaddafi was crazy. Well, none of them were crazy. They didn't run their countries the way we run ours. Um, And we chose the easy way out by calling them crazy rather than to try to understand why they were doing what they were doing. You know, I remember when I was working at the CIA, I was I was Saddam Hussein's classified biographer. That was my job. My sole job Hmm. was Iraqi leadership analysis. And my I, I remember writing a paper for the White House. This was in like 19... 91, saying Saddam Hussein was not at all crazy. He was actually quite intelligent. He rules differently than most other uh, world leaders. Um, And I likened him to uh, the head of a a mob family, where he's willing to use violence in in the pursuit of, of business, but it's just strictly business. And it's on us if we don't understand, fail to understand, or misunderstand his intentions. And you can say that about about, you know, every conflict that we've had since up to and including this one in Ukraine right now. There's nothing crazy about Vladimir Putin. Look back at what Oliver Stone uh, concluded after he interviewed President Putin. Um, he said that that Putin takes a lot of heat in the in the West because he was a former KGB officer. Well, what they don't tell you is that he left the KGB because he disagreed with the way they carried out their operations, right? He thought they were heavy handed. And so he left on principle. I think that's something to be respected. Uh, Another thing that Oliver Stone concluded about Vladimir Putin was that um, he was not a communist. There's nothing communist about Vladimir Putin at all. Nothing. He called it a failed ideology that set the country back generations. Yeah. He's been vocally anti-communist Vocally, for years. vocally yeah. anti-communist. Um, he's also a devout Christian. There, there have been so many areas that we could have cooperated with the Russians on over the years. I say this all the time. Counterterrorism. Yep. Counter-narcotics. Counter-proliferation. These are things that we all agree on. But it was the United States that chose not to pursue those avenues of, of cooperation. Yeah. And, you know, 
Earlier this year, I was reading um, a collection of writings by uh, the late uh, Stephen Cohen, uh, his, his his war with uh, Russia book. And while certainly, you know, we would find points of agreement, uh, points of disagreement um, politically, that was actually something that uh, I was surprised by about how much the U.S. would have had to gain by working with Russia specifically on the, the counterterrorism piece and about how, you know, Russia potentially could have had information that very well uh, could have uh, stopped the, the, the Boston. Boston Marathon bombing, for instance, exactly. and, and, and things like that. And, and these are things that Americans just don't know. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's just uh, because and this was a part of the wild aspect of the Donald Trump uh, era is that Donald Trump was uh, such like a repugnant figure in a number of ways. But uh, there was this thing that uh, uh, this like Trump derangement syndrome thing to where on foreign policy specifically, anything that he was attempting to do was painted as some, you know, demonic uh, collaboration with um, a a dictator or something like that. And so it made a reproachment with Russia poisonous. Mm -hmm. And uh, same thing with uh, the DPRK and things like that. Now, of course, we know that Donald Trump is no, you know, a a militant anti-imperialist. He has his own uh, motivations for wanting to do these things. But the mere fact of uh, anyone, even a reactionary like Trump, uh, breaking with the Washington consensus was just seen as almost like an unpardonable sin. Meanwhile, in my humble opinion, the Democrats in a number of ways uh, paved the way for Trump to basically be um, sort of uh, whitewashed, basically reaccepted and, and reintegrated into the political mainstream to where, if not him, certain the politics he represents now is making another serious play for power here in the U.S. And so things have really reached a crisis point, I think, here in the U.S. I think that the uh, the war in Ukraine is a glaring example of that and the fact that the U.S. Uh, seems to be attempting to do the same thing with China vis-a-vis Taiwan, I, I think, spells some troublesome Uh, times ahead as well. You know what I mean? I'm worried about U.S. provocation of China. I don't see... I don't see the overall point of the current U.S. policy toward China. And and this this really begins at the very, very beginning of the Biden administration. Um, to me, it, it sort of began to come to a head when Nancy Pelosi announced that she was going to visit Taiwan. And the president disingenuously said that he hadn't been informed. That he didn't know anything about it. That is patently untrue. And, and I'll tell you why. Anytime any U.S. official... Uh, visits a country, and I don't care if you're the lowest level desk officer or the president of the United States himself, you have to go through a certain paperwork exercise called country clearance. And what happens is the State Department or the White House will send a, um, a cable to either the embassy or in the case of, of Taiwan, the U.S. interest section, and say... Nancy Pelosi requests permission to visit Taiwan. Usually, 99.9% of the time, that's just pro forma. And then the the embassy or the interest section will respond, we welcome the upcoming visit of Nancy Pelosi and her staff, blah, blah, blah. That has to go here in Washington through each level. So if Nancy Pelosi wants to go to Taiwan, she has to send uh, a letter to the State Department liaison The State Department liaison then sends a letter to the State Department and to the White House National Security Council staff. Somebody as important as Nancy Pelosi then has to get the permission of both the Secretary of State and the President himself 
and then they send the cable to Taiwan, and Taiwan sends the cable back welcoming her. Now, we also heard this lunacy that the Pentagon was was opposed to Nancy Pelosi's visit. <laughs> right. Yeah, what a joke that is. Not only did they approve of the visit, they provided the aircraft. Nancy Pelosi didn't get on a United flight and go to Taiwan. She took a U.S. military aircraft, she and her entire staff. So what was the point of Nancy Pelosi's visit to, to Taiwan? Was it to, you know, go hiking and look at the pretty flowers this time of the year? No, of course not. It was to stick her finger in the eye of the Chinese. No, we didn't have to do that. That was totally unnecessary. And then it was followed up by a visit by, of all, of all people, the governor of Indiana. Yeah. Right? And then we start talking about new weapons packages. And then we start calling Taiwan a major non-NATO ally. Now, that, those aren't just words that people come up with and throw around. Those words have very specific meaning. A major non-NATO ally gets the same treatment as a NATO ally. So Saudi Arabia is one. Bahrain is one. If, if Iran, for example, were to attack those countries, we're compelled by, by, by agreement with, with both Saudi Arabia and Bahrain to protect them. Well, now we're bound by the same kind of agreement to protect Taiwan against China. What's the point of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the point seems to be to try to stoke uh, open <laughs> nuclear conflict. And I think this is another point that a lot of people miss in terms of how the U.S. and NATO bring countries into the fold pretty close without actually making them members. I know in the case of Ukraine, uh, there's a lot of training for uh, interoperability yeah. uh, for uh, uh, that, even though uh, Ukraine is not actually a, uh, a member. And so it's just a lot of machinations of the uh, U.S. NATO uh, axis that is, uh, like we say, frankly, just like disallowed from even being mentioned, which just shows how poisonous the media landscape is and how dangerous the existential situation is, uh, which I think points to the importance of a uh, independent force outside the political mainstream to really uh, uh, turn these things around. But we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, October 24th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Libra, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also download our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear us at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave. 
dot digital. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash BAM necessary. And just like every day, we are broadcasting live from rumble.com slash C as in cat slash BAM necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Gerald Horn. Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of dozens of books, including The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Horn, uh, in the UK, former Treasury Chief Rishi Sunak is uh, set to become that country's next prime minister after winning the uh, Conservative Party leadership race that I believe took place today. Uh, This will make Sunak uh, the first a leader of color in Britain's history and follows not long after the resignation of Liz Trust, who only served in office herself about 40 or 45 days before resigning. And of course, her short tenure follows that of Boris Johnson, uh, who resigned amid uh, no small amount of scandal. And so I'm just sort of uh, generally curious, your top line thoughts uh, uh, about this Dr. Horn, and what do you think the ascendance of a Rishi Sunak means for uh, British politics? Well, it's very intriguing, is it not? Uh, what, what jumps out at me is that uh, Mr. Sunak, I think quite wisely, uh, has a place for potential exile in Santa Monica, California, uh, which is a nice place to be in exile, if you ask me. He also had a green card until recently, until uh, people started complaining about it. I, I understand he's given up his green card, but I, I'd like I'd like to check the record. Uh, he's not only from the one percent; he's from the point oh 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 one percent. His fortune is approaching about eight hundred million. His spouse is even richer, believe it or not, and she, of course, is notorious as a tax cheat. But in any case, I don't think that we should downplay the fact that. Uh, he is the first South Asian man, man of South Asian origin, to become prime minister. And I think that this is important. It should be not be sniffed at, because I think that the more we have this breaking of that barrier, the easier it becomes for, say, a U.S. populist to accept uh, President Sean Blackman. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, I- I'm also sort of wondering, I mean, why do you think there's been such uh, uh, shifts within British politics uh, uh, here lately? I mean, do you think it's the, culmin- the sort of the culmination of some dynamics that have been playing out there in the country for some time? Or what do you think is happening there? Well, part of it is the Zelensky curse, uh, as some have called it. If you look at the broad scope of European politics, you'll see that the Mario Draghi of Italy was driven out of office. You see that Mr. Macron's lost many seats in the June elections in France. You see that the Chancellor Schultz is on the ropes. Part of what's happening is that, as is obvious, with the crisis in Ukraine, you've had a shock to the energy system, which has led to a rise a rise in the price of food. Uh, British inflation is in double digits right now. As you know, food has to be 
uh, transported, which means via vehicles. You've had the rise in the price of airline tickets because airlines need fuel. You've had the rise in the price of uh, home heating oil, for example. In fact, part of what ran uh, Liz Truss aground, the preceding prime minister, is not only that she was seeking to have massive tax cuts basically subsidized by borrowing, but at the same time, she was going to try to subsidize the rise in heating costs uh, in Great Britain. And there is a dire prospect that in Western Europe right now, that there is the possibility, if not probability, you have people freezing in the dark within weeks. And that is one of the reasons why uh, former Harvard professor and president uh, Larry Summers, former uh, Treasury Secretary under Clinton, said that nations like Britain are not only approaching the downward level in their estimation of being an emerging market, not unlike, say, uh, Tanzania, for example, Paris the Thought, but they're submerging markets that they're going under. And I don't think it's accidental that as the ship of state is running aground, that they choose that moment to put a man of South Asian origin at the wheel, <laughs> because then it becomes easier to scapegoat. It becomes easier to have Mr. Sunak perhaps exercise the option of living in exile in Santa Monica. <laughs> Well, that would be interesting indeed. And I mean, speaking of uh, uh, Kiev and, and the ongoing war in Ukraine, where we're talking about uh, Europe, I mean, I mean, we've been seeing some pronouncements from people like uh, French President uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron saying that uh, ultimately it's up to Ukraine to decide about, you know, when or how uh, uh, any sort of peace deal or peace talks come with Russia as it regards that conflict. I mean, he uh, gave some remarks at a peace conference in Rome uh, recently saying that Ukrainians will be the ones ultimately to, quote, choose the moment in terms of uh, peace as it pertains to this ongoing war. And, you know, I feel like Macron has faced some uh, criticisms in the past for trying to push for some kind of peace deal or peace talks um, uh, between Ukraine and Russia with some of the more uh, hardline elements uh, basically accusing Macron of, you know, succumbing to uh, Kremlin propaganda or something like that. Also, perhaps worth noting that France is just one of uh, uh, the European countries that has seen mass protests around uh, uh, cost of living and all these sorts of things that are directly impacted um, by the war in Ukraine, uh, not to mention Mr. Macron uh, uh, himself uh, recently uh, had this uh, austerity budget passed within France. And so I'm wondering how you're considering uh, sort of the, the French dynamic and perspective in all of this, Dr. Horn, as at least as of this moment, it uh, seems as though the government in Paris is something of an outlier uh, in the region as it pertains to the Ukraine question. Well, Mr. Macron is in a real squeeze. Just a few days ago, there was the equivalent of a general strike in France. He had thousands marching in the street, led by his left-wing opponent, the former Trotskyist, speaking of Jean Mélenchon, head of France unbowed, uh, marching side by side with the recently crowned Nobel laureate, Annie Erno, the novelist and writer. And at the same time, you see that uh, we have a word that has been crafted to describe the relationship between Washington and Paris, and that word is frenemy. 
they're friends insofar as uh, Washington and Paris would both like to ensure that, for example, Africans do not control their natural resources like the natural gas and oil, Algeria, for example, the, the uranium of Niger, for example. France is heavily dependent upon uh, uranium from Niger for its nuclear plants that help to fuel uh, French electricity. So both of these North Atlantic powers uh, have an interest in making sure that imperialism of some sort reigns supreme in that part of Africa. But at the same time, they're in contestation because obviously Washington, via AFRICOM, would like to see U.S. imperialism reign supreme and France begs to differ. And then you saw the spectacle just a few days ago of France uh, knocking together this so-called European political community uh, where they met in France, excuse me, in Prague, uh, in Czech Republic. Washington not invited. Of course, Russia was not invited uh, as well. But uh, this is part of this uh, longstanding position going back to Charles de Gaulle uh, in the 1950s and 1960s of France trying to establish an independent position uh, not necessarily as much in the pocket of Washington as London has been. And this is not smiled upon in Washington, even though, back to the friend aspect, it's striking to note that the first state dinner of the Biden regime will be in a few days. And, of course, the guest of honor will be one, Emmanuel Macron. And so this is, is part of this contradictory pattern, this tightrope that Mr. Macron is, is, is trying to, to walk. And then the latest news, this is European-wide, but Mr. Macron has taken the lead on it. Uh, he's been complaining about the price of natural gas that's being shipped from the United States. I mean, surprise, surprise. Uh, natural gas in ships costs more than the natural gas from Russia uh, through pipelines. I mean, these natural gas merchants in the United States and the Texas-Louisiana border making out like bandits at the expense of these Europeans. But you, you really have to sort of blame the, the Europeans because they walked into this trap, although admittedly Mr. Macron did say some months ago that NATO was brain dead. But then again, he did not act upon that insight. And so Washington set the trap. Uh, they created this NATO that was creeping ever closer to the borders of Russia. Russia objected tried to negotiate. Washington stood down. France was not muscular enough to force Washington to move from that position. And so now we have Western Europeans in the process of being part of submerging markets, of heading down in a kind of death spiral economically. Yeah, and you know, and maybe this is a difficult question to answer, Dr. Horn, but I just think about the psychology of these different Western European governments who, in uh, tailing the United States, have put themselves in a pretty serious uh, situation uh, politically and economically. And I would argue socially, as we continue to see um, uh, uh, mass demonstrations uh, in some of these countries uh, against the rising cost of living and sort of similar issues directly tied to uh, the proxy war in Ukraine. And so my question question then is, you know, why would these governments 
go along with Washington, you know, to their own peril, even despite the sort of real sort of uh, political threat to them and uh, the social and economic threat to the masses of people in their country. I mean, what are these what do these governments have to gain by continuing to follow the United States government uh, down this path of uh, destruction? You know what I mean? Well, I, I, I just examine my previous comment. I think that France ultimately does not have sufficient sinewy muscle mm. to play the role of top dog imperialism in Africa, for example. It has to rely upon the aerial assets, the satellite assets of U.S. imperialism in order to play that particular role. And so if France broke with U.S. imperialism altogether, uh, it would call into question its vast investments in Guinea-Conakry, Senegal, Mauritania, Cote d'Ivoire, Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, Chad, Southeast to Madagascar. And France does not feel it would be wise to do so. That is to say, to break with Washington altogether. That's why you have this anomalous uh, frenemy relationship where France is trying to uh, run with the hounds and, you know, it's trying to hunt with the hounds and run with the hares, for example, as the saying goes. So, I think that that helps to explain why France is going over the cliff, just like Western European nations are going over the cliff generally. And look at Germany, 82 million strong, the locomotive of the European Union, uh, but it's festooned with U.S. military bases, uh, which calls into question uh, German sovereignty, uh, obviously. And it makes it very difficult for Chancellor Schultz to break with U.S. imperialism altogether. Although you're going to have a... You already begin to see the strains because Chancellor Schultz is headed to China within a a few weeks. This is in the prelude to the G20 meeting in Bali, where Mr. Biden, Putin, Chancellor Schultz, Macron, all of them plan to show up. So Mr. Schultz is going to make a pit stop in Beijing. And so that's indicative, I think, of the point that uh, Germany is willing to walk alongside U.S. imperialism with regard to Ukraine they may not be able to take the next step, which is the Cold War with uh, China. Uh, even though Mr. Burrell, the foreign policy coordinator of the European Union, said that the model on which European nations were based, speaking of cheap energy from Russia, cheap goods and markets from China, has basically been disrupted. But I don't think that the latter, that is to say breaking ties with China altogether, is going to be in the playbook of either France or Germany or Italy or either or many of the other leading powers of the European Union. Although you can you can better believe that it will be in the playbook of the toadies of U.S. imperialism. Speaking of the Baltics, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, not to mention Poland, uh, etc. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of U.S. imperialism in the new Cold War on China, uh, Dr. Horn, uh, here recently we saw uh, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, lay out charges against 13 uh, Chinese nationals for allegedly trying to influence the United States in a number, excuse me, in uh, a number of ways. Uh, There were seven Chinese nationals who were charged with, uh, you know, participating in a scheme to 
forced the repatriation of a Chinese national living in the U.S. I'm, I'm reading this straight from USA Today. Uh, there were two Chinese intelligence officers charged with attempting to obstruct a criminal prosecution in New York. Four Chinese nationals, including three Ministry of State security intelligence officers, were charged uh, for allegedly taking part in a long-running intelligence campaign uh, and all of these sorts of things. And so, I mean, as we continue excuse me, to see uh, provocations vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and things like that. I mean, how do you sort of, uh, uh, how are you analyzing or what is your estimation of these kinds of moves that uh, we should, that, that we're seeing from Washington towards Beijing that uh, on the show, at least, we, we maintain that it really does feel like the U.S. wants to move from a cold war with China to a hot one? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, I was petrified watching MSNBC the other day when you had these U.S. congressmen rather blithely discussing the possibility of a war with China. Uh, another data point to consider is that I'm a member of an academic association called the American Studies Association, and I joined because they took such a strong position on Palestinian rights. But lo and behold, in the current issue, the lead article he describes China as being as enmeshed in anti-black racism as the United States is, believe it or not. On that same point, uh, Alex Villanueva, the L.A. County Sheriff, who's running for re-election, is a real thug, a real gangster, typical of U.S. cops. He's charging that black American men are largely responsible for the wave of violence against Asian Americans, particularly Asian American women. In other words, we're supposed to be in the vanguard of this uh, hysteria. But I think that what that ridiculous, ludicrous comment bespeaks is the unity that I see in leading circles and even below leading circles, such as the American Studies Association, certainly the leading Democrats and Republicans, uh, with regard to uh, hostility towards the People's Republic of China. And uh, I know that there are countless U.S. corporations who are invested heavily in the Chinese economy, KFC, Starbucks, GM, Tesla, Microsoft, Apple, although Apple, of course, is trying to move production from China to India of late, which is interesting from a geostrategic point of view. And all of this does not bode well, <laughs> I must say, to put it euphemistically. Uh, it's it's something that we all should not only be concerned about, but we should be mobilizing uh, to basically make sure that the hotheads are cooled off. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Dr. Gerald Horn. 
And Dr. Horn, I wanted to stay for just a moment, uh, if we could, on a comment that you made just before we went to the break about this idea of China being a hotbed of anti-blackness and uh, this this trope that it's uh, uh, that black men are the chief culprits and these uh, uh, racist anti-Asian hate crimes uh, that we've been seeing a spike in over the last couple of years. Something that we've attributed to the show uh, directly to these racist uh, imperialist um, uh, uh, policies uh, of the U.S. government to say nothing of the kind of historic uh, uh, discrimination against uh, Chinese people specifically and Asian people in this country in general. It's just kind of like a fascinating deflection play that the U.S. always wants to go through or like the strange kind of projection. It's just like um, in July of last year when we saw a protest in Cuba because of uh, worsening conditions in the country under the coronavirus pandemic, which, of course, was compounded by the criminal unilateral blockade ordered against Cuba by the U.S. And that whole situation was being painted as Cuba's uh, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, like a black uprising against, you know, the racist, white, um, uh, communist, authoritarian government. And it really was sort of um, uh, uh, interesting to see as they were framing what was obviously something that was being amplified uh, for the benefit of U.S. imperialism, but being sort of advertised as a, a, a anti-racist struggle and who wouldn't want to get uh, behind that. And so it feels like a similar piece here. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, the question of whether racism exists in China, I think, is uh, you know somewhat separate. I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to uh, go a lot of places where you don't see some of these backwards attitudes. But the reality of that uh, doesn't seem to be much of an interest to uh, Uncle Sam, to say the very least, which likes to either, um, you know, uh, exacerbate or amplify and sometimes just out and out fabricate and lie about things like this to justify its uh, uh, aggression against different countries. And so I say all that to say, uh, 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 Dr. Horn, about it's just pretty wild to see the U.S., of all entities accusing anyone of being sort of particularly guilty as it pertains to racism or anti-blackness, considering that's, you know, literally in the DNA of this country. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, you're familiar with the term sock puppet, sock puppet I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Sort of a popular term to describe, just like a sock puppet, it's, it's, you're being manipulated by someone else. And I think that, there are forces in the U.S. ruling elite who are trying to use the black community as a, as a sock puppet, you know, or, to, to use another metaphor, as a human shield. <laughs> that is to say that uh, it's like the, the culprit grabs a hostage and makes the hostage walk in front so that if there is an attack, the human shield will get the bullet in his chest. And so black Americans are basically the human shield. So... If China gets upset, they'll come after us. And I'm afraid to say that our leadership, our intellectuals, our organizations have not prepared us adequately, speaking of the nation as a whole, not to mention our community, for this dire prospect. Because as I've been talking of for so, oh, so many years, so I'm virtually blue in the face, and given my melanin content, that's not an easy state to reach. Basically, our leadership, our intellectual organizations have been missing in action with regard to global questions. How many of them have any had anything to say about the rise of China? 
I mean, you'd never know that China is on course to surpass the U.S. imperialism as having the largest economy on planet Earth by some measures it already is. And what the gargantuan consequences will be, what do, what do they have to say about the party congress that just concluded this past week? What do they have to say about the rise of neo-fascism in Italy with Giorgio Maloney, the new prime minister incoming, we believe, uh, being as anti-African uh, to the point where she would make the Ku Klux Klan blush? And we know that the anti-black racism easily uh, is transmitted across the Atlantic, just like it's transmitted from Washington uh, into Japan and China. And so our community is in bad shape right now because it has been failed, I'm afraid to say, by the leadership, the organization, and the intellectuals. And that helps to explain why the <laughs> sheriff of L.A. County can get away with blaming black men for being the vector of attack against poor Asian-American women. Yeah. And, you know, switching gears a, a little bit to some other international questions here, Dr. Horn, I also wanted to raise the issue of um, the Ethiopian government under Abiy Ahmed and uh, uh, forces in uh, Tigray, I believe the TPLF, Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, are uh, set to meet for uh, some of the first peace talks since the conflict began. Uh, we've been seeing a lot of calls for ceasefires and things like that. And uh, it appears that, uh, uh, you know, originally they were set to meet in Pretoria, the capital city of South Africa, uh, when things, uh, when, since the war first broke out uh, two years ago. And so I'm wondering, what do you think of uh, uh, this development, uh, Dr. Horn, and what do you think it means for this uh, conflict in the Horn of Africa at this point? Well, uh, I was tuned into some African news just before the program, and these journalists who are usually plugged in were not able to ascertain where in South Africa these peace talks will be held. There was no confirmation that Uhuru Kenyatta, the outgoing president of Kenyatta, who's so supposed to be involved, along with the former president of Nigeria, Mr. Obasanjo, whether or not they were in town. So I don't know what the meaning of that is. Uh, should we be concerned or they're trying to or is it they're just trying to be very low key about these talks? Uh, let's stay tuned. But in any case, uh, let's hope that peace can emerge because uh, this crisis has really spun out of control. Just a little background. Uh, the Tigrayan forces up until a few years ago, even though they're only six to seven percent of the population, were basically ruling the second largest country on the African continent, uh, speaking of Ethiopia, second to Nigerian population. But alas, Abi Ahmed was elected prime minister. And the, the, the spanner in the works, if you'd like, is the fact that neighboring Eritrea has a bone to pick with the Tigrayans. Because when the Tigrayans were ruling from Addis Ababa, of course, they came into a sharp conflict with the Eritreans, even though the Eritreans and the Tigrayans uh, were shoulder to shoulder in the struggle against Mengistu Haile Mariam, the preceding leader uh, who led uh, what he considered to be a socialist-oriented regime. Now he's in exile in Zimbabwe, as you know. But the, the Tigrayans and the Eritreans have fallen out. And in some ways, the Eritreans are the locomotive with regard to steamrolling the Tigrayans. And so I, I trust and I hope that 
uh, there will be high-level Eritrean representation uh, at these peace talks in South Africa, assuming that they move forward. Definitely. And just to clarify from uh, what I said earlier, that uh, the, the current uh, peace talks were set to begin in uh, uh, Pretoria in South Africa. Uh, this would have been the, the first time that this happened formally uh, since everything broke out a couple of years ago. But we have a caller on the line here, Tamara. Tell us what's on your mind. Hi. Good afternoon, Sean and Dr. Horn. Um, I guess I, I want to follow up with Dr. Horn and his uh, mentioning of the CPC's uh, recent or the CPC party meetings recent. Um, yeah, their recent meeting. Sorry. And yeah, I managed to watch day one on it. And if anyone is interested in watching it, uh, CGTN on YouTube has full coverage of the party's meeting. And one thing that struck out to me um, in the on day one was what the party leaders called a national rejuvenation. Apparently, China is on what they call a high-quality development, where they're saying that they want to rejuvenate the nation all fronts to a Chinese path to modernization. And I was really impressed by how they associate modernity with development, and that means actually housing and, I guess, what they call um, when you turn a desert into um, forest, like they did with the Gobi Desert. And so I think that I guess I, I guess I wish the U.S. had that kind of focus because they they are they, they said they're planning to do the development so they can be ready to open up and so that when the economy does open up again they're able to take advantage of it and so yeah I just wanted to say that and about like how they seem to have a good domestic plan that seems to I don't know they're they're doing big things and I guess I say it's in contrast to the 1990s when the New York Times called. China, a paper dragon. And I couldn't tell if they were boasting or like almost enjoying the fact that that China has, um, that China was struggling to develop. And I think watching this meeting, I could see why the U.S. is upset. China is a very strong country. It seems like they have a governmental system that's able to develop or to have 1.4 billion people a part of this plan. So yeah, before I keep ranting, I just wanted to mention that. Thank you for your work. Well, thank you, Tamara. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Dr. Horn, our caller here, asking about the uh, recently concluded uh, 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, your thoughts? Well, what concerns me once again is the question of war and peace. Uh, recall that it was only a few months ago, in August, in fact, that when Speaker Nancy Pelosi was headed to Taiwan, the rebel province off the coast of China that China claims as its own, which the United States, through the statements of Mr. Biden, is trying to move to some sort of uh, formal independence, that there was serious talk as to whether or not her plane would land, could be shot down, for example. And uh, once again, to return to the previous point, uh, accompanying her on this trip, was Congressman Gregory Meeks of Southeast Queens, a leading member of the Congressional Black Caucus, who is the author of this legislation that would punish African nations if they were so bold and audacious as to diverge from the U.S. position on Ukraine. But if you go back and look at the tape of 
Gregory Meeks and Speaker Pelosi on the tarmac in Taiwan. It's a metaphor for the problem that we face right now. I mean, you would have thought that Gregory Meeks was uh, Marcel Marceau. He was some sort of impressionist. I mean, Speaker Pelosi would turn and wave, he would turn and wave. She would stop, he would stop. It was almost like he was mimicking her every move. And that's the metaphor for the problem with a lot of our black leadership is that they're mimicking the every move of these multi-millionaire politicians like Speaker Pelosi, who, by the way, is a walking scandal. Uh, We've been following all the news about how whenever there is some critical legislation, for example, on COVID vaccines or all the rest, that surprise, surprise, her husband, Paul Pelosi, isn't able to make stock trades to cash in. And so this is the kind of leadership that our leadership uh, is mimicking. And no wonder we're headed towards bankruptcy and towards catastrophe. Yeah, and why do you think that is, uh, Dr. Horn? I mean, I feel like there was a period when, you know, uh, uh, some black officials in a U.S. government would have, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, a critical eye, particularly towards um, uh, foreign policy with the understanding of how that connects to, you know, how uh, black people and other poor working oppressed people in this country uh, uh, fare. That seems to, I mean, it, completely basically fallen by the wayside uh, uh, here as things stand today and to where, I mean, our, our black uh, elected leadership basically uh, seems to be functioning on the principle of going along to get along. And there's no sort of a principle critique or really many principles to speak of, uh, uh, to be honest, as it pertains to that uh, milieu of people. And it's just, you know, why do you think that is? Because I feel like that is a big part of what contributes to the uh, uh, political uh, stagnation and arguably the de-evolution that I think we've been seeing uh, within black America for some years now. Well, I'm afraid to say that this nation has moved to the right and the ground has moved beneath our feet to the right, which has shifted a good deal of our leadership and our organizations to the right. I think that's part of the explanation for this scandal in the L.A. City Council with these very obnoxious comments made by recently sacked president of the city council, Nori Martinez, uh, anti-black racism, for example, uh, addressed and spoken openly and notoriously. It's an expression of this move to the right. And so, obviously, uh, our mission is to try to resist that move to the right and in turn try to move the the nation to the left and then the ground beneath our feet will similarly move to the left, which will make somewhat incongruent the possibility that a Gregory Meeks can act as if he's the shadow of Nancy Pelosi when she makes a provocative foreign trip to Taiwan. Yeah, definitely. And I think another aspect of uh, how to move that ground under our feet to the left, a part of it is really a question of, well, how do we move people in the millions in this country to that kind of program and to that kind of effort? How do we develop and grow and strengthen mass socialist consciousness in the United States, a country that is steeped 
in uh, uh, the worst, most virulent and violent forms of uh, anti-communism with a, a long and uh, painful history of uh, repression and brutality to that end. I mean, it is a, a positively mammoth task, but it is something that is going to be necessary if we're talking about a real systemic change in the U.S. And we'll only be able to do that if we are properly organized. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here Dr. Gerald Horn is here, and we have another caller on the line here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, great show. I'm glad Professor Horn has returned. Uh, he's quite timely. I have a question for him. Uh, there seems to be a common thread between all of the countries, uh, the underdeveloped countries, if you will. And, um, you know, their overthrow by the U.S. or undermining their government. Now, I just realized reading that um, Indonesia has invested in high-speed bullet trains, and the Chinese have started shipping them to them. I, I believe that's who, who's supplying them. And then I look at Ethiopia. That's China's largest uh, country. And, I mean, its biggest invest, its, its largest investment is in Ethiopia. The current, the, the previous regime was there for 15 years. They got rich off of the system. And you have to ask yourself, why would they want to come back when they stole everything that wasn't nailed down? And I think the, this talk about Trump saying, blow up the dam from Ethiopia headwaters into Egypt. Somehow, foreign aid, not in food aid, but in things that can help a country grow and evolve uh, infrastructure, education. These things are scorned by the U.S., and I want Dr. Horn to, to try to piece this together for me. I see a, a common thread here, but it, it, what's the bottom line by not wanting, for not wanting these countries to have economic growth and modernization? Thank you. Well, thank you, Keith. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, first of all, with regard to Indonesia, the United States has had a very stark cross-relationship with this uh, largest predominantly Muslim nation comprised of an archipelago uh, not far distant from Australia and uh, East Timor and Papua New Guinea. You recall that it was in 1965 that a U.S.-sponsored military coup led to the decapitation of the Indonesian Communist Party, at that point one of the largest communist parties on planet Earth. Uh, that led to military dictatorship under Suharto until he was dislodged during the midst of the 1990s Asian financial crisis. Part of the issue in Indonesia is that the economy, as is the case for a good deal of Southeast Asia, is dominated 
by Indonesians of Chinese extraction. In fact, if you were to plot how China has been able to climb the ladder of economic success, a lot of it has to do with relationships with Chinese Indonesians, Chinese Filipinos, Chinese uh, Malaysians. And also, if you look at the conflict between Vietnam and China, two nations ruled by communist parties, part of the issue back in the day was that Vietnam, as you would expect of a communist party, they were trying to rein in domestic capital, but domestic capital happened to be Chinese-Vietnamese domestic capital, and then that uh, did not necessarily go down well in the People's Republic. So the G20 meeting, the Group of 20 meeting, the meeting of 20 um, leading economies on planet Earth will be meeting in Bali, Bali, uh, in a few weeks. Uh, I don't know if Russell Simmons is still in Bali, but that is something that we'll have to reference. Uh, Russell, I get out of town, though, because I might try to hijack him out of there and send him back to stand trial. But in any case, uh, that's my take with regard to Indonesia, where China has poured in quite a bit of capital, although, once again, you have to be very nervous about this relationship with the indigenous Indonesians and the Indonesians of Chinese extraction, because in the past, that's led to a lot of political upset, including pogroms, in fact, directed at these uh, economic royals. Now, with regard to Ethiopia, uh, as you know, going back hundreds of years, there were ships sailing directly uh, from China into East Africa. There's archaeological evidence to suggest that. So it's not surprising that a good deal of Chinese penetration on the African continent is in East Africa, not only in Ethiopia, but in Kenya as well. And I expect that to continue uh, irrespective of what happens in terms of regimes changing or not in Addis Ababa. And we have another caller on the line here. Allie, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, John. Um, I just wanted to say hello to also Professor Horn. Um, I have a comment, and I also have um, uh, a question for Professor Horn and 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 you too, um, um, Sean. Um, one of the things that I wanted to say is that it's not only in L.A. Uh, County in California that Villanueva um, is making those remarks. It's also happening here in New York City. Um, they are taking the black men and saying that the black men is actually attacking um, the Chinese, yeah, the Asian people. And also a lot of the Latinos um, are blaming a lot of the crime that is being committed here in New York City. The propaganda that the, um, the police department is doing in the city is just incredible. It's just unbelievable about crime right now. So I just wanted to put that out there because it's just really, really terrible what you're doing, even though I keep talking to my family about it and telling them that crime is down all around the nation. They don't want to even hear me. So this is a big, big problem. It's not only in China. It's not only in L.A. It's also in this city at the moment. So that is my comment. But my question to Professor Horn is, being that Richie Sunak is uh, South Asia's descent, and being that India is a member of the BRICS, do you think that this has been uh, a political move by the U.K. Uh, about picking this man as the prime minister? 
because I know that they're having so many economic problems in in the, um, in UK, and and I know that India is getting closer and closer to China and Russia, and I'm wondering if it, this has been a political move at the moment. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ali. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon, uh, Doctor Horn. Your thoughts? Well, with regard to uh, Prime Minister incoming Sunak, I think it's fair to say that when Brexit, the British exit from the European Union, was engineered in 2016. Part of the idea of the ruling class in London was that it would give London more flexibility in cutting deals with countries like India, now the fifth largest economy on planet Earth, fifth largest with a bullet, as they like to say. In fact, it's pushed Britain down to number six, because Britain was formerly uh, number five. And uh, there's been speculation as to when... Uh, Mr. Sunak will meet with Prime Minister Modi uh, of India. Uh, I have to say that I think that class interests and other interests will outweigh any kind of real or imagined ethnic compatibility uh, between Sunak uh, and Modi. Although I think it's a, it's, it's a fair question, because in speaking to my friends in North America, in the Indian diaspora, there's a lot of bugs amongst Indian Americans and the Indian diaspora about Mr. Sunak and what that that may mean, particularly since, uh, as you probably know, in the Indian diaspora, particularly in progressive circles, there's still a a, a lot of resentment, to put it mildly, towards the centuries of colonialism visited upon India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and that whole South Asian region uh, by London the gross exploitation that looted and plundered uh, an entire subcontinent. So how Mr. Sunak will negotiate and navigate that will be fascinating to watch. (laughs) For sure. Uh, We've got another caller here. Ben, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, Yeah, the question I have uh, for Dr. Horn uh, is this. Dr. Horn, what is the rogue state, the definition of the rogue state and the deep state? And is it the rogue state and the deep state and the CIA that is uh, doing all these coups around the world and running this country and not the presidency? And I'll I'll take the answer off the air. Thank you, Dr. Horn. Well, thank you, Ben. Appreciate you calling in. Uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, generally, a, a deep state, the way it's used popularly nowadays, generally refers to national security forces, the military, intelligence services, et cetera, that supposedly are operating uh, in a rogue fashion, not necessarily at the behest of the chief executive, the president. Uh, I'm not so sure if I accept that premise in every circumstance, but certainly, uh, I have to say, (laughs) if you look at the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, it's hard to leave without thinking that, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, I was confusing deep state and rogue state. I was really talking about the deep state, that uh, the deep state was somehow involved in that particular assassination. There's a a lot of evidence pointing in that direction. Now, with regard to a rogue state, uh, that's reference, I guess, to the United States of America. Uh, That is to say, a state that, despite all the rhetoric about observing a rules-based international order, Rubio, that it basically makes up rules as it goes along. It makes up rules in order to justify it giving orders. 
and that helps to explain the overthrow of Gaddafi about a decade ago. It helps to explain the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Uh, these were the machinations of a rogue state, basically. And so that is a term I can much more sign on to. The deep state, I would have to look at it based upon the circumstances. Yeah, and I mean, even with the um, <clears throat> popular way that this phrase deep state is used, I mean, to me, it's it's the same thing as, as when people use language like um, crony capitalism or corporate capitalism. And what I'm saying is you're, you're describing... Um, uh, an element of a system or an institution, but you're not describing something that is distinct in and of itself. And so with what people call the deep state, this kind of network of, you know, uh, unelected uh, intelligence and uh, military institutions and things like this that have impact on our lives without our say, I mean, that's just to me uh, uh, a factor that's part and parcel of the capitalist state itself. The issue is uh, the capitalist state and how that plays out in terms of the uh, exploitation and oppression that flows from that. And at the highest level uh, on a global scale, that, of course, looks like U.S. imperialism. And it's a phrase that I think we hear a lot, particularly like in terms of issues like, uh, uh, you know, Julian Assange and people talk about, you know, the military industrial complex or the Mick or the Mickey Mad. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of synonyms and things like that. But I think it's important to be clear about how at the core of it is the capitalist system itself and uh, the capitalist state under which all of these things operate. And that's important to remember because I feel like like if we're just talking about a deep state, then that kind of obscures uh, sort of uh, the reality of so many things that are happening. And it, it kind of muddies the waters to me and makes it a, a shadowy type of deal. Well, you know, it, it's hard to fight a shadow. And so if what you want to do is to actually fight to overturn the system or to fight for a completely new type of state apparatus, well, then you have to be clear on who it is and what it is that you're uh, uh, act actively going after. And I feel like that's uh, really at the root of so many of the issues that we uh, discussed, Dr. Horn, in terms of how uh, uh, the exploitation of the capitalist system and all those different contradictions feed into all of this. But there's something else that I wanted to touch on with uh, the few minutes that we uh, uh, have left today. And, you know, uh, that's, of course, the ongoing January 6th committee uh, that has officially uh, subpoenaed Donald Trump. I believe the Trump organization is uh, actually going on trial starting today for tax fraud and things like that. And particularly given your recent work on uh, uh, fascism, Dr. Horn, just wondering how you're considering uh, that aspect of things. Well, it's something to be concerned about. Obviously, you have hundreds of election denialists who will probably prevail on the first Tuesday in, in November. I'm afraid to say that we may look back at 2020 as being the golden age of fair elections in the United States of America, because it's clear that these uh, neo-fascists uh, do not intend to have fair elections going forward. My next book, in fact, to bring this into the discussion, will be on the city of Washington, D.C. in the 20th century in the context of racism and radicalism. And one of the things I point out is that because Washington has had this moniker of being chocolate city, that's guaranteed that a significant number of juries 
have had a significant complement of black people who have been prone to throw the book at people like Steve Bannon, for example. And that's just one more reason to fight gentrification in the nation's capital. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, when we sort of break down how it, it, it sort of all goes. And I think that like not a lot of people or not enough people are paying attention to this whole issue with um, the electoral vote here in the U.S. Because I agree that uh, these uh, fascist sympathizer types, these far right elements uh, uh, definitely want to uh, go after voting rights. And of course, they're doing so with basically no fight back or pushback from uh, uh, the uh, 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 the Democrats. Uh, and one would think that uh, that would be a no brainer. But that's basically what we see. But even if we look back over these last few years of U.S. elections, I mean, we saw, of course, the Capitol attacked under this uh, issue of what's been called the the big lie, this uh, notion that uh, Trump and his ilk have been promoting that uh, he actually won the election, but it was stolen from him uh, from uh, by the liberals or what have you. But before that, when Donald Trump uh, uh, won the election, that was called into question as well. But in that instance, by the Democrats who swore that it was actually Russia under the leadership of Vladimir Putin that interfered and swayed uh, uh, the election towards Trump instead of the reality of which it was this uh, electoral college, of course, a a remnant, a, a relic of slavery, which is a bulwark against democracy and not a facilitator of it. And so I really feel like we're in a moment where uh, faith in a lot of these different institutions that we're taught to have the utmost faith in in the U.S., I think is waning more and more and more. And that's quite natural because as people continue to see their uh, conditions worsen with no real response from those in power who they've been told that they can trust, well, it only makes sense then that uh, we see people lose faith in uh, uh, these uh, democratic processes and apparatuses like voting and all these sorts of things. It just feels like on so many levels and so many different ways, people are getting messaging like uh, uh, these uh, institutions and processes simply aren't worth trusting. And so this is why we often say here on the show is that the, the center really cannot hold when you have all of those contradictions just sort of, you know, uh, 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 swelling and exacerbating and becoming uh, uh, worse and worse seemingly as the day go by. It's only a matter of time before things reach a breaking point. This is the rot that we're describing as uh, uh, conditions become uh, sharper and more difficult here in the U.S. and around the world. And so the question as always then is how are we going to respond? Are we going to allow this uh, uh, ruling class to push us over the edge into oblivion? Or are we going to uh, take up our historic duty to build the kind of movement and the kind of organization needed uh, to bring about uh, the society and system that we know is needed to actually fulfill our needs? I really don't think there's any uh, uh, getting around uh, that aspect of things. And I think the sooner we come to that conclusion, the better off we'll be. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dr. Gerald Horn, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.